Hello debaters and welcome to Points of Information. We're still recording from our homes because of social isolation, but now we're actually still debating again with our public speaking competition going strong and with online debating also starting up again. It's turning into a very interesting time of year despite the coronavirus lockdown. So here we're going to talk about in this episode a whole bunch of myths surrounding debating that we thought I'd get a bunch of our senior and experienced adjudicators in to talk about and do a bit of myth busting. So we have a panel of three adjudicators here. First off, I'd like to introduce a returning voice, that of Mitchell Dye. Mitchell, hello again. Alexander, thank you very much for having me back on the podcast. It's great to be here. Since you were last on the podcast, you were the uh, vice president of adjudication and training. But since then, we've also had an annual general meeting, so I would like to introduce the new Vice President of Adjudication and Training, another returning voice, Joel Cripps. Hello, it's nice to be on here with a title for a change. <laughs> with a title. And of course, finally, we have a new voice for our returning listeners, that of Sophia. Hi, team. It's great to be here. Okay, so starting off with timing, have any of you ever heard any myths from debaters about timing in speeches? Yes. <laughs> I think the big one tends to be that we do keep listening after the double knot cutoff, and that's, as you might suspect from me saying that it's a myth, that's really not true. The sort of big reasoning behind having that really strict timing, that strict cutoff, is that everyone sort of gets a fair go at giving their speech in the same amount of time as everyone else. And you can keep talking after the double knock if you want, until we start continuously knocking, but none of that can really come into our overall adjudication. The example I always use is that at the second knock, at the double knock, you know, that's when I suddenly become deaf. <laughs> that seems to be the best way of explaining it to them. If I'm deaf, so I can't hear anything. If you present your conclusion after the double knock, I mark it as if you didn't present a conclusion. And I think a myth that I heard, because it was around when I was debating, which was quite a long time ago, was that in school, if you spoke for a certain amount of time over the allotted time, you would lose X marks, like you'd lose one mark after 30 seconds and two marks after a minute. I should probably point out that there's no automatic penalties that apply to a speaker's score. It all depends on how things go on the night. And I think a really big thing about timing to understand it is that it's all about quality rather than quantity. So it is possible for someone who speaks for three minutes to cover as much ground as someone that speaks for six minutes. So people need to be aware of making sure that there's depth of content in their speech rather than worrying about just how long the speech is. So yes, it is possible for someone who speaks for a shorter amount of time to score more highly than someone that speaks for longer. And really just going on that, don't try and pad your speech with additional pointless repetition, particularly of stuff like your summary. I have seen a number of third speakers that will spend half of their speech going over all the things we have already heard from the rest of the debate. That doesn't really add anything. All you're trying to do is take up time. That's bad for two reasons. It's not persuasive to tell me things I've already heard and not add anything new because you're not allowed to add anything new at third speaker. But also, it gets in the way of me spending more time giving you feedback at the end of the debate. We only have an hour to do most debates. And so we can't spend as much time giving you feedback if everyone speaks for 10 minutes rather than they're allocated eight minutes or six minutes. So if you stick to your time limits, we will have enough time 
to give you the feedback you need. And if you don't just add more stuff to it, we will be able to tell you what you were missing and why you weren't able to get to time. Because we'd like you to get into that time bracket, but it's just a piece of advice. I think it's probably important to say, though, that repetition isn't the same as gatekeeping, which is a very debater-specific piece of jargon that means referring to your previous team's points. Like, I don't want to scare third speakers away from talking about what their other speakers said, Joel, but it's the way you say it and the way you present that information to add something to it rather than to just parrot what was said earlier. Yeah. And I think something that illustrates the quality versus quantity argument is a debate that I was in many years ago. It was a secret topic debate and the speaker thought they could reach time because they clearly didn't have enough prepared material by literally introducing every single person in the room by name. And you know that filled up a good amount of time, but it wasn't necessarily quality. So it's always a priority to add depth to your speech and add arguments. And it's not necessarily bad to recap what's already happened in the debate, but uh, within reason, if the summary is longer than the original point, that might be a problem. Going back to what you said about having a, there used to be a thing where a lot of speakers used to think that, you know, there would be automatic deduction if you went N minutes over time or you would lose X amount of points if you were Y minutes under time. I heard that a few times when I was starting to adjudicate and the thing that I would always find myself telling the debaters would be something along the lines of, there is no change to your marking directly from how long or how short your speech was, but there are consequential marks because of that. For instance, if your speech is severely under time, it might be because you missed an argument, you didn't expand on your points, and you were you forgot to have a conclusion. And you'll be marked down for not having a conclusion, for not explaining your ideas, but you won't be marked down for going under time. Yeah, that's always been my philosophy, and the philosophy is that timing is a symptom rather than the problem itself. So if you speak exactly. under time, it might be that you're talking too quickly, you had the right amount of content, but you were delivering it too fast, and therefore no one could understand what you were saying. Or if you uh, have your speech and it goes over time, it usually means that the organisation of the speech wasn't the best, and therefore a method penalty may apply. So usually there's some sort of issue if your speech is way over or way under time. Something I often see in speeches that go over time is not very good prioritisation of points. So people come out with a ripper argument after the double knock and I just can't take that into context in the debate. And it's always, it's really heart-wrenching to see that because, you know, there's a really good piece that's been brought forward, but it just can't be in my adjudication. Yeah, such a good point. All the pieces were there, just not assembled properly. So yeah, prioritise the most important material to the start of the speech so that you don't risk uh, having it cut off by your speech going over time. And I think this ties really well into the, I hear a lot of myths or like uh, debaters talking about themselves, oh, hey, you have to do this or you have to do that. And it sort of brings up the myth of checkboxes. You have to do this to get full marks or you can't do that or you automatically lose marks. And it's not just timing where that happens. There are cases where, oh, if you don't do the summary in this exact way, then you lose one mark or something, which is an obvious myth. You, we ask you, we, we give you the score sheet and say, write your names. There are no checkboxes on that score sheet. Take a close look at it. Yeah, it's a bit different to other forms of assessment and I can understand why people think that way because they're oh, used sure. to certain forms of assessment that use a rubric, but in adjudication it's a lot more fluid and what we tell adjudicators to do in the training is to try and look at the debate holistically, look at the bigger picture, look at which side was the most persuasive first rather than just adding up some numbers to see who has the highest score. And it's a bit unusual and that's why I think some people struggle to understand that method of assessment, but that is what makes debating exciting. It's 
it's dynamic, it's always changing. And that's why I enjoy coming back. The way I often tend to describe it is you want to make your speech nice to listen to for the adjudicator and also persuasive. And if it's those two things, you'll generally get a good mark. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And nice to listen to is things like your manner, how you speak, how quickly you're speaking, and also the words you're using. Are they easily understandable? But beyond nice to listen, there's also the structure inside of that. So if I understand how your speech is organized and what point is coming next, that's also nice to listen to for me as an adjudicator, because that's awesome. You give me guidelines on how your speech is set up. I love that. It's less work for me. And just thinking about it in those framings rather than I have to like, you know, do my summary in this way. I always have to provide this structure. I always have to do this. And I think it's a lot better way of thinking about your speech in the context of debating. And on nice presentation, let's talk just a little bit about eye contact, because I have seen a lot of students over time that assume eye contact is the ability to flash your eyes up from your cue cards and then flash them back down. And that's eye contact if you do it enough in the speech. That's not what eye contact is. It's about trying to use looking at someone to make them trust you more and believe you more and persuade you more. It's much more interesting and you're much more willing to listen to someone who is talking and looking at you and trying to engage with you compared to someone who is just reading a set of notes. So we don't just want you to flash your eyes up and look back down. We want you to actually spend a couple of seconds while you're speaking to try and really connect with us to persuade us of your particular point. Yeah, I've tried to sort of transition my feedback away from talking about eye contact towards talking about engagement, because really, we're not marking how often you're looking up or the maximum number of glances up per minute. We're marking how well you can engage with your audience. So I'm trying to sort of transition my feedback to something that sort of reflects that, I guess. Anyone that had me adjudicate their public speaking speech will hopefully notice this. There's a lot of talk about in the manner feedback about engagement, but not much talk about eye contact unless there was something wrong with it. Like I might make a comment of, you know, reading from an A4 piece of paper is not the best for your eye contact, but, you know, transition that over to is not the best for your engagement. And I think it's important that we kind of recognize that eye contact is kind of scary. I've been debating since 2011. I really hope that doesn't age me too specifically. But even now, like when I look up during a speech and someone's looking back at me, I get like a little heart flutter, like, oh my goodness. We know that it's difficult, but it is something that sort of really helps with your engagement. If that's a problem, the trick I was told is to look up the back wall or just look above someone's head because they assume you're looking at the row behind them if there's enough people in the room. And if they're not, it's, it's just looking up generally. And I don't think it unsettles adjudicators too much. I can't speak for you three. One thing I will just say on that, though, is uh, once you do get used to eye contact slash engagement, one of the things I love about public speaking as a medium is being able to read the audience's faces and sort of get that instant feedback about how your speech is going. So I use eye contact to actually see how people are processing the information. And if they look confused, it's a reminder to me to explain a point more clearly. Or if they're starting to look bored, it's an idea on how to move on. So it sort of encourages that two-way exchange oh my goodness that is a hundred percent me doing training jsp training when teaching new uh, students how to debate what i'm doing because i've got of course the lesson plan i need to go through you know teaching them how to structure their arguments how to find the arguments how to rebut 
And, you know, some of those things can be very intimidating topics if you've never debated before. And I am always trying to, you know, open that conversation with my audience to try and get back from them. Do you understand what I'm telling you or do I need to slow down or maybe go over it again? Or am I boring you and I should like move on to new content all the time? And it's so helpful. And that can help. That can help a lot in debating just to see what the adjudicator is doing in terms of their reaction to your speech because I've noticed that the adjudicator's facial expression can sometimes say a lot about how your argument is being assessed and perceived. Yeah, having having said that though, Mitchell, I try very hard personally to not give that feedback as an adjudicator <laughs> yes. because well, I don't Definitely. want I don't want either team to think that I am favoring a particular team before I give my adjudication or even a particular argument. Yeah, and often you'll have teams staring you down when they're not speaking to try and get a read on you. <laughs> Maybe if you see us looking fierce or you're trying to interpret a very blank facial expression, just accept that you can't always read us. That's true. For me the hard one is looking encouraging. Every now and then you see a debater that's not quite as confident and you're trying to give them, you know, the encouraging, like, don't worry, you got this, just give the speech, we're all encouraging here, we want to see you, you know, do great things. But that, that's really a hard one, I think, because I, I can't just get it out of my head that I'm here with this explicit purpose to provide feedback. And I guess that can be intimidating to some people. And that's another myth that we should probably address a little bit. We as adjudicators do not want you to do poorly. No one in the room wants to see a bad, boring debate where someone fails to get through their speech. Everyone in the room, particularly the adjudicator, wants you to do well. So if you make a mistake or you want to try something new, try not to worry about it too much because we're all there to support you. And frankly, if you make a mistake, that's better because we can comment on and fix. If you never try to rebut, we can never fix your rebuttal. And if you never try eye contact, we can never tell you how to fix your eye contact and make it better. If we look fierce and like we're really thinking, that's not because we're mean, horrible people that don't like you. That's because we're trying to think and make sure that we keep a straight face and then we'll tell you everything you want to know afterwards. So remember that we're friendly. Incredible point, Joel. So, yeah, absolutely so well said. It's really hard for people to kind of get out of their heads. Something that I've been sort of told in my adult life is more grown-ups are afraid of public speaking than they are of death. And I love it. I love being the centre of attention, uh, as you can probably tell already on this podcast. But I think something that's really hard to get out of your head about is just like everyone in that room wants you to succeed, except for briefly the other team. <laughs> and then after that, like... Even then, like as a team who's going against another debating team, I love to see a good speech from the other team. I'm a bit mad about it because I want to win, but watching a really good debating speech is such a joy in itself. You want them to push you. You want them to challenge you. That's what you want from the other team. You want them to give a speech that's nearly as good as yours. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think so well said, Joel, really, that everyone in that room, including the adjudicator, wants you to succeed. And if... If we didn't want you to succeed, we wouldn't give you feedback at the end of the speeches. Should we move to another myth, perhaps? Yes. Well, one that I really like is the one around models, because it is an issue that's come up a fair bit in the last couple of years that I've noticed. Back when I first started adjudicating, which was quite a long time ago, people didn't really have models. And since that time, thanks to the feedback of numerous adjudicators over the years, now everyone has models. And a lot of people, I think, put too much emphasis on models, particularly in topics that don't require a model. So it's important to note there are some topics that do require a model and some topics that don't require a model. And if you spend too much time 
on a model on a topic that doesn't require a model, then really you're essentially just wasting time. So it's important to note that if the topic is asking you to do something, like for example, that we should ban smoking, that is a topic that requires a model. But if it's a topic that is just proving a statement true or false, like for example, that we should fear the rise of China, then that doesn't require a model. So just bear that in mind. Should we have a model and how do you use the model effectively? I have forgotten the number of times we have talked on this podcast about the differences between normative and empirical topics and how, if you have an empirical topic, you should not be introducing a model. Uh, right as Mitchell said, it, it's only something for if you're doing something topic, not if you're, do we regret this or should we fear that? And the model itself is not an argument. The model exists to support your arguments. So the model is not the sort of why part of your speech. Why should we do this? It's the how part. So you bring it in early in the speech and then you're using it later on to support your arguments to explain how you're going to do it and why that's a good idea. So if you reference your model and have lots of different steps and stages and the model takes you know, a minute to deliver and is not then referenced again in your speech, then that really is a waste of time, unfortunately. Yeah, as Izzy said in, I think it was episode three, if your model goes for more than about 20 seconds, you're doing it wrong. And if you have a tiered structure or you have like different tiers or something in your model, you're also doing it wrong. Tiered models only lead to tiers. Exactly. That's a good one. I think a good way to conceptualize your model is as part of your definitions, particularly as the affirmative team. So you sort of say like, we should ban smoking. Smoking is the inhalation of tobacco-based products, does not include vaping. This is our model. And if you think of those pieces as part of the same thing, where you're saying, here's the definition of what we're arguing. This is the framework within which we're constructing our argument. I think that's a really good way to conceptualize your model. Mitchell, you said that you sometimes see models that are big and complex and then never referenced again. I would like to point out one small thing, though, and that is sometimes a model, the big benefit of a model isn't in your main arguments as much as it is in rebuttal, because it's so much easier to rebut something the other team said if you can just turn around and say, Yes, but as per our model, it won't happen quite as the other team proposed. It will instead happen this way because the feature we proposed in our model and we don't think this will be as much of as big of a problem compared to this other problem that the other team has conveniently neglected. That's right, but uh, there was a debate I was in. I remember a really long model where the team had obviously tried to anticipate every single argument that the negative oh, no, side might possibly that. come up with and uh, it ended up being a really long model and it turned out that the negative side took a completely different approach and that's why we love debating it's dynamic it's unpredictable if you try and predict it too much unfortunately it usually doesn't work i think something we can talk about in models is i will often see negative teams who bring out counter models when they're not really required you certainly can if you think you've got a great one but a lot of the time it just really isn't necessary to have a counter model from the negative team. I've seen negative teams that have entered a debate and then the affirmative team has raised a model and they're going, oh shoot, damn it, we've got, uh, we have a model we have to deal with. Now, sometimes I sort of, they never tell me explicitly, but I have this hunch that they're going with, if only we could have a model. There's nothing against counter models. As a negative team, you are allowed a counter model, but the same thing applies as to the topic. Some topics can't really do counter models. Some topics, it's great and it will help you, but that's not every topic and you, again, need to consider in the context of the topic you are debating and the debate you are in the middle of debating whether a counter model will be a good idea. 
the answer isn't always yes, but at the same time, it isn't always no. And yeah. sometimes I think with a counter model, there's a real risk that you will end up getting too close to the affirmative side. So if you start to put all these conditions in, you get your arguments closer to the affirmative side. Whereas if you back in the status quo, even if that seems a bit harsh, it actually gives you more things to talk about. Yeah, so two, two sort of things on that. Firstly, a lot of the time as a negative, your model is the status quo. You're just arguing for what currently exists. Sometimes the topic phrasing doesn't mean that you can necessarily do that, but also that when thinking about counter models, make sure that you're arguing within the motion. So if the motion is that we should ban smoking and you as the net go, no, we shouldn't, we should ban alcohol. You're not arguing within the motion at that point in time, but also ensure you're not going too soft as sort of as Mitchell was saying as a negative team. So like a soft neg might seem easier to win, but as an adjudicator, we don't look upon them super kindly. Yeah, good point. I recall a particular debate I did once at debate camp on the topic that we should invade New Zealand, and a lot of the negative teams tried to set up a counter model that we should instead invade the USA because they will be really unstable. The problem with that being that it just was not in the scope of the topic. The topic was about invading New Zealand. You either have to say, no, we should not invade New Zealand, or we have a different way that we would like to deal with New Zealand. You can't just start talking about something completely different. And the way to handle that as an affirmative team a lot of the time is to, you want to give enough lip service to the negative team's model. Like if they spend a lot of time on it to say, you know, here are all of the reasons we want to do this. You want to, you know, sort of respect that time, but you can also just say, yeah, we'd do that too. Or that's not in the scope of this debate. You don't want to be too sassy, but you can absolutely kind of say like, yeah, we'd also ban alcohol. We would also invade the USA maybe later. We're a bit busy with invading New Zealand right now. Excellent. Should we look at another myth? Let's have a look at a whole category of myths now because there's a lot of different myths surrounding the scoring and debating because it's a little bit different. It's not like soccer where it's who scores the most goals or something. And I think because of that, there's a lot of myths surrounding how debates are scored. For instance, when I was debating back in secondary school, the big myth was that a debate could only be won or lost by one point. Which is not true. That is a myth. It's completely incorrect. Yes, exactly. We can go up to 15 points. That as is, a margin. As a as margin, margin between yes. the teams. So according to section 7.4 of the Australia-Asia Debating Guide, in case anyone wants to get out their copy at home, a margin of one to four marks is a very close debate with only minor differences separating the teams. Five to nine marks is a relatively clear decision with one team having an obvious advantage. And 10 plus marks is a very clear win with the losing team probably having failed in one or more fundamental aspects of its argument or presentation. And I haven't personally seen any debates where I've had 10 plus margins. Just, just a small note about the AADG. You probably don't have a copy at home that you can refer to, as Joel was mentioning. So if that's you, it is freely available as a PDF from our website, dav.com.au. You click on resources, it'll be there under Australia-Asia Debating Guide. And I've found that if you just Google AADG, just those letters, I think we might be number three on Google or something. So oh, really? There you go. Now we need to do a bit of search engine optimization. <laughs> I think people can get kind of stressed out when they see marks below 75 
because, you know, we put 75 as the average and the scoring can sort of go from 70 to 80 with scores above 78 being quite rare and similarly scores below sort of 73 being quite rare. It's difficult, right, because an average sort of necessarily means that but half the people, half. It's yeah, a medium, half, yeah, half the people should be below average. Half, <laughs> half of your speeches should be below seventy-five, and the other half should be above seventy-five. You know, assuming a perfect world and stuff. Yeah, if you're an average speaker, right, or yeah, an average adjudicator. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and it, it, it's it's all that average stuff. And, well, I think the other part of that myth is also average what. The answer to which is the average for that competition grade. So if I'm adjudicating, let's say, B grade in Geelong, I am marking every speaker relative to every B grade speaker in the school's competition, not just in Geelong. And I think that's also another important thing to note. So often as an adjudicator, when I go to a competition or start adjudicating things I haven't seen before, I'll ask for the kind of speeches I'd be expecting as an average. And so that's kind of like the backroom chat you don't necessarily get to see as a debater, but we are sort of quite conscious of what that average should look like and scoring in reference to that. I had a 12-pointer a couple of years ago, but, yeah, that's very, very rare. Usually it's because one team is really, really um, outstanding and the other side was just a little bit below average, unfortunately. Yeah, I've seen it in university debating competitions where in the first round there's no sort of power pairing, so that's when two teams that win a lot get put against each other. And so you might have a very inexperienced team going across the team that ends up winning the competition and you actually have to stick to that 15-point margin and it feels, it doesn't feel good to give those margins. Another thing to remember about these margins, though, is just because you have a wide margin does not mean either the adjudicator is mean or that you are a bad team. All it means is that the distance between the two teams is large. And as Mitchell was saying, that's sometimes because one team is phenomenally excellent and the other team is just average, can end up in a massive margin. And it's also how you did in that specific debate as well, because I think it's very easy to kind of see the score and like tie a lot of your self-worth into that. But realistically, it's how you're doing on the day. Like with all other sports, of which debating is definitely one, you're doing your best on the day, and sometimes you don't have a good day, and that's okay. Yeah, in AFL, the bottom team on the ladder can still beat the top team on the ladder any given day. So that's exactly right. Unfortunately, we all have off days, and therefore you can't really take prior performance into much consideration. It's the two teams and how they go on the day with that particular topic. I have a question for the other people on this podcast, which is is how do you find you mark the speaker position you would usually sit in? Because I have to be, I'm a first speaker and I have to be very thoughtful about how I mark first speakers because I'm both like a little bit more critical because I was a first speaker, but I also love them more because I'm a first speaker. (laughs) (laughs) At school, I tended to speak across the different positions. So I didn't really have one, but then kind of towards the end, I was always first speaker. Um, But yeah, it's a really good point because the first speaker actually does have quite an important job in terms of setting up the debate. So I'm probably a little bit more sympathetic to first speakers given that I was a first speaker a lot myself. Something we have to consider, I suppose, because some people might think that all the accolades go to third speakers and it's kind of their job to be very showy and over the top, and that's not necessarily the case. And that is another one of the key myths, that third speakers are better or that second speakers are better or that first speakers are better. In any given debate, any position can be the best speaker. 
We're just looking for who does the best at their job. Although I think it's worth mentioning, though, that if you're a new debater or a beginning debater, third speaker is definitely the most intimidating. Yeah, and that is why sometimes it tends to get a little bit more praise because it is a bit more difficult. You have to be more responsive. There are lots of reasons why sometimes the third speaker might be better. But there were also plenty of times where I've seen teams where the first speaker was just a clearer, better speaker and they were the most persuasive. Or there have been debates where I haven't given a best speaker because I thought too many people were on, a, on around the same level. These just show that it's not about the position you speak in. And we'd actually encourage you to do what Mitchell did and sort of jump around a little bit. I got very tied into being a third speaker, but that doesn't mean that third speaker is the best position. doesn't mean I'm only good because I'm in third. You should try and do all because they're all the same skills and you can easily transfer them. Yeah, move around and work out what you like. That's what I'd suggest. And avoid having those preconceived notions. Give third speaker a go and you might actually surprise yourself. It's kind of how I fell into it back when I was getting started on our team. Uh, the person that was normally third speaker wasn't going to be debating and I kind of drew the short straw and was third speaker for that round but ended up really enjoying it. Why is it the short straw then? <laughs> because back in year eight, in that particular year, the <laughs> perception was third speaker was the hardest and yeah. you had to have a pre-written speech and of course I've learned a lot since then but back when you're only 14 or 15 years old yeah. those are the things you think and everyone finds different positions easier or harder like personally I find second the hardest I hate speaking second but first or third I can do it right out for us when I was in year eight the thing was if you wanted to get an award or to get you know school colors or to get a swanny award or something you had to be third speaker that was the perception back when I was in year eight patently wrong I got a Swanee Award from first speaker. Thank you. Just I'm weave that in. I'm so glad there's an example there because it's totally not, not correct at all. Any more myths you want to get through? How about the slippery slope is always a great slash terrible idea? Yes. I, I have opinions about this one. I think the slippery slope argument can be okay if you justify and explain exactly why it exists as a slippery slope. I think a lot of the time it is not done well and it's very dangerous for a team who is inexperienced or is just going to say it's a slippery slope and move on to try and put that forward as an argument. I think it can also be difficult to respond to, particularly for teams who are less experienced, because it's a compelling argument. I mean, it's something we see and hear on media and radio and in politics today. So it seems like this really good argument you can put forward that like, you know, if we legalize marijuana or ban school uniforms or ban zoos, for example, then everything else is going to fall apart and society will collapse, right? But, you know, as someone who's lived through two whole same-sex marriage debates, <laughs> um, the slippery slope argument, the way to kind of respond to that is to be like, well, no, like, we'll just stop at this. We won't keep banning things or keep legalizing drugs. We'll just do the one thing. Then generally you want to add in a little bit of analysis and, you know, sort of dive into that a bit like we expect in debating. I don't find them particularly compelling unless they're done extremely well. I've never seen a slippery slope argument done well, but I have seen its biggest sister done well, the this sets a dangerous precedent. And it must be all the commerce and law and legal studies students in A and B grade that do that. But that tends to be a bit better because, first of all, if you're able to say something along the lines of that sets a dangerous precedent, you probably have an understanding of how exactly what you are saying will affect 
other issues and have flow-on effects compared to it's a slippery slope which I find is more often used just as a throwaway line you know it's just like because oh, it's a slippery slope you know it's something we don't think about it's something our brain just uses as a filler phrase to pad out their speech. As someone who has spent a little bit of time looking at law and precedent and convention, there is a way to make this argument. But like Sophia was saying, it all comes back to your logic and your matter skills. Just like every argument we ask you to present, you need to tell us how and why. If banning smoking or not banning smoking is going to lead to the end of the world, and you can show me the steps between the banning of smoking and the ending of life as we know it. You need to explain all of those steps to me, and then I might believe you. That's how you do this argument well. But it's fairly hard to do that, so you're better to go with a simpler argument. Yeah, but I think you're all spot on. I really don't have anything else to add to those points. I think Sophia laid it out really nicely, and Joel, uh, what you said there about the steps is spot on. Be very explicit and work through it rather than just making these sort of bold assertions. Can I can I just briefly add to what Joel said? It's not specifically related to slippery slopes. The way I tend to ask people to make arguments is to imagine the adjudicator as like a three-year-old with a really advanced vocabulary. So whenever you say something, they ask why. And they can understand the words you use, but they want to know why it's happening, why it matters, and why like it absolutely has to happen like this. And so with the sort of slippery slope argument, as with all other arguments, which I think we're about to talk about a little bit more, just making sure that you explain every link in the chain between what you're saying and what you're like sort of trying to convince me will happen. And that does bring us with a nice link to evidence and statistics and studies. There are a lot of debaters who believe that their argument will completely fail unless they can bring us 25 statistics. I saw a debate. The best way to address this when I find teams that do this is by saying, okay, we have things called unseen topics or secret topics or advised topics where we do not expect you to research anything while you can bring an entire encyclopedia into the room with you we do not expect you to do that so it's entirely possible to win a debate using only logic and reasoning and in fact we don't judge you on the statistic you bring unless you back it up with logic and reasoning. The AADG makes very clear that logic and reasoning is what we are asking for, not a competing list of statistics. And I have seen this in debates. In an internal debate at my old school, one of the speakers turned away halfway through their speech and went, now for some statistics, and just read out a list of statistics that was not engaging and it was not persuasive because I didn't know why any of the statistics were something I should listen to. I call it fact tennis when it happens, when people just end up arguing over one particular statistic and one team is saying 60% of something is the case and the other team is saying, no, it's closer to 12% because there's no way for me as an adjudicator to assess which of those is true. All I can assess is the way that you argue. As Joel was saying, I can assess your logic and your reason and, you know, which sounds vaguely believable is sort of like, 
we refer to ed- adjudicators kind of like educated lay people. So we have the sort of understanding of a person on the street. And if a person on the street doesn't know anything about, you know, how much copper China mines from the Congo, then it doesn't matter. You can add it as like a little bit of flavoring, a little sprinkling of crispy shallots, but don't make it the core of your debate speech. The example I use when I find teams that have a bit of rebuttal back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about whose facts are more correct is normally by pulling out my phone and say, hey, you can see this thing, yeah? I was using it to time you. Did anyone see me start Googling things on that phone? No, that's because I didn't. I'm not fact-checking everything you say. As long as it doesn't sound completely ridiculous, I don't really care. And can I say that the same rule about statistics goes for studies, academics, and quotes? Friend of the podcast, Izzy Leach, likes to tell us that we don't know who the fancy man is who wrote this study about the specific thing you're debating. We don't know who they are. We don't know why we should listen to them. And the AADG, again, specifically says that all saying someone holds an opinion proves is that someone holds an opinion. It does not prove that the opinion is correct. So instead of spending your time giving me quotes and statistics and loading yourself up with evidence, spend that time instead picking one or two pieces of compelling evidence and stepping through it. Why is it important that this statistic is happening? Why does it matter that someone thinks this way? Why are they likely to be correct? I think it's useful, you know, again, sort of looking at it as flavouring. When you're making a case about something to change or something that is true is to use it as sort of like, you know, we already see this, for example, and just kind of sprinkling it in like that. I had something else to say and I lost it. I'm sorry, team. (laughs) That's all right. But I think case studies are very, very powerful is kind of what you were getting at there. And that's probably one of the better forms of evidence. And one of the worst forms of evidence would be personal examples, which aren't against the rules. You can't lose the debate for using it, but personal examples just aren't that compelling. And it gets a bit awkward in rebuttal sometimes. Yeah, no one really wants to tell you that your grandma isn't as important as you think she is. Please don't use them. (laughs) (laughs) I think something else to sort of say about quotes as well, right, is that quotes are great. But using your own words to explain to me why I should believe something is way more compelling. A quote only proves that somebody said something. That's all. And even then it's sketchy at best. And fancy words don't prove anything except that you have access to a thesaurus, which is not persuasive. The amount of people who have stood up and decided that they want to sound clever by telling me that they're going to point out some fallacies in the opposition case when all they're doing is rebuttal is starting to get on my nerves. You don't need to say that it's a fallacy to sound clever. You don't need to say that there's a counterfactual. You don't need to look at the comparative. You can speak like you would usually speak to humans. Please do not be that team that called it (laughs) fake news. As someone who definitely spoke like that to other humans as a teenager, if that's your whole vibe, like, though, if you use the word fallacy in your everyday chats, you go for it. Like, live your best life. Yeah. Like, I think that's that's more than what Joel is getting at. Like, personally, I, I love it when people give a good speech because they are sort of channeling themselves more than what they think a good debater is. 
And you can tell if someone is using the words because they would use them in everyday speech against someone that's using them for the first time on the night. And sometimes that's hard because you're doing a topic about a country like uh, with the Monash Asian Studies debating. There are lots of countries you might be talking about there that you wouldn't usually talk about. Have a go at pronouncing those names before you have a go. But also don't use it if you don't need to use the word. A concept like sovereignty can be broken down into the simpler idea of a country being in charge of itself. You don't need to use the word sovereignty. I don't check something off for being clever because you said the word sovereignty. It's actually better to explain it to me. For the same reason Sophia was saying before, you have to pretend that you're speaking to the average reasonable person, not to some expert. Any more myths we want to get through? Uh, let me just have a look at the list. Oh, can we very quickly do the terrible introductions? Oh, please. We don't? Yeah. One more myth that we have is that there is a particular way that you must begin your speech, and it goes something along the lines of, Good evening, Honourable Adjudicator, my team, the opposite team, every member of the audience, Cousin Steve, Welcome to tonight's debate. I'm the second speaker of the negative team, and the topic of the debate is that smoking should be banned. I'm from this school, and it's really important that you listen to my important speech. You don't need to start like that. In fact, it is probably better not to start like that. Wasted 20 seconds. And it's all stuff we've heard before but not in a particularly engaging way. There are better ways to do introductions where you try and grab our attention. Yeah, I think going for shock value sometimes within reason works, so trying to tell us information that we don't have before, or even just doing something that's different to the other speakers in the debate to get the audience to sit up and take heed of what you're about to say. The first 15 seconds or even fewer seconds, maybe seven seconds of a speech is really critical because during that time, the audience is assessing your ability as a speaker and trying to work out whether they want to keep listening to you or not. So if you can do something in the very opening stages that is engaging, that is persuasive, you're more likely to hold their attention for the rest of the speech. And when we say sort of engaging and persuasive, you might not necessarily know what that looks like in an introduction, right? So that's things like you might use a hypothetical to draw someone in. So like if it's this house would ban zoos, the classic debating topic, you know, you might draw it in by going something like, imagine you were living your life in the wild, happy as can be, but you were captured by people and forced to live the rest of your days in a cage for other people to stare at you. That is the daily life of animals in zoos. And so, like, what's that done is it's, like, it's pulled me into the debate by asking me to imagine something. It's brought through, like, a lot of emotive language and a hypothetical. And it's also made it pretty clear what side you're on. You're clearly not a fan of zoos. Without giving me all of that information that I already have written down on the score sheet in front of me. I think that's a very important way of putting it because, especially with some of the younger grades, I find myself telling the same thing to all the teams and it's that you shouldn't present something that the audience already knows. So if I've just introduced, we will now hear from the second speaker of the negative team, I don't need you to say, hi, I am the second speaker of the negative team. I don't need you to introduce your teammates. I have their names 
written on my sheet of paper. I also have your name written on my sheet of paper and your school's name written across the top of your team. So those are all things you do not need to tell your adjudicator or your audience. They can probably tell which school you're from based on your uniform. And if you can't think of a snappy introduction like Sophia's or something quicker, just go straight into whatever you're going to say. Just leap straight into your rebuttal. The opposition told us this thing and they're wrong about it. I would say start with good evening and then do that. But We always found it punchier just to go straight into the rebuttal because there's no need to say good evening. You're not... It is, but it keeps it polite, I guess. I don't know. Mitchell, do you care to weigh in? Yeah, it's a really tough one. And I think it comes down to a lot of what Sophia was saying before about what is your style and trying to be yourself. So some people, I think, have a certain style about them and can do different introductions. So just have a think about what is your style and what is something that will communicate who you are, but also adds all of those benefits that we talked about. Yeah, do a quick vibe check. Be like, am I the kind of person who says good evening? If so, say good evening. If not, yeah, get in there like Joel does. I think from an adjudication point of view, at this point, it's worth mentioning in the, is it one of the opening lines of the AADG? It actually says, this is not a complete guide. There are many things that make something persuasive. Well, I think in summary, it's very hard because in life, there's so many different things that are either not persuasive or are persuasive. And that's why Mm. in our competition, we try and have as few rules as possible. The only reason that we have rules is either for fairness or to promote persuasion for that reason that we want you to have the flexibility to do what you think is going to be persuasive. And let's see how it goes rather than saying you must have this very rigid introduction. The takeaway message basically being, if your introduction is persuasive, it's fine. Move on with your arguments. And I think something that's important to remember, sort of adding on to what Mitchell said, is, you know, us as adjudicators go through training, right? We have training, we have registration tests we have to do. And so the fact that we have very few rules and that we're sort of here going, lots of things can be persuasive. Give a good speech, I guess. That reflects on the fact that, like, we have, you know, some of us many, many years of experience, some of us fewer years of experience, but also that we've all been required to meet a particular standard. And so that we're broadly as a body in agreement of what is persuasive and how do we talk about persuasion and how do we give feedback. And, you know, you can sort of respond to that as well uh, when adjudicators hand out um, the little assessment score sheets about like what you want to see in your adjudicators. And hopefully uh, bits of this podcast have helped convince you that we're not nasty and mean when we give you a lower score or a high margin or some feedback that might seem a bit blunt. Sorry, that went a bit everywhere, Alexander. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. And if you're confused still by something or you want to clarify why an adjudicator might have told you a particular thing, there is no reason you cannot email publications at dav.com.au and give us some questions that we can address on a future episode of the podcast. We would love to hear from more people and we'd rather you ask us than continue to be confused in silence. You can also ask your adjudicator. So I've been doing the Monash Asian Schools debating competition over the last few weeks. And after the first one, you know, I sort of give my feedback to everyone and I say, are there any questions? I'm going to stay online for another sort of 10 or 15 minutes. So if there are and you don't want to ask in front of everyone, you can say. And I've had a few people stick around and just ask me questions about debating, not even about the specific debate. If we have the time, we're more than happy to help. I did sort of a bit of a power move last year in Essendon when that happened. I had a debate in the first hour, but not the second. And I kid you not, I was answering questions from first hour debates 
for that entire second hour. Yes, I think I might recall that. Well, um, that does we... sound like a natural place to wrap up. Yes. Should we move to conclusions? There are a number of myths out there. Some of them are more serious or more widespread than others. I think there's a few that sound like they might be localized to fairly small geographic regions or indeed a single region. But I guess it's nice to address some of them. Well done. Uh, well done all round. Great to be on this podcast. Hopefully you'll invite me back at some point in the future, but I've really enjoyed this opportunity to try and dispel some of the questions that a lot of people have. And as always, Mitchell and Sophia and Joel, thank you very much for joining me for this uh, extra special round. Please stay tuned for the next one and we'll catch you all next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.